So, Matt, you went to school at Dartmouth. Where did you grow up? Oh, I was born in Connecticut, raised California, came back east for school. And then for my career, I came down to Virginia and I now live between Virginia and Wyoming. And you said uh, you said earlier you like the cold weather. Yes, I do. I love snow. I love the way it dampens sound. I love the way it challenges you as soon as you get out the doors, reminds you that, you know, there's, you know, that nature still matters. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, sets the I, agenda, yes. That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, so Dartmouth, uh, are you a skier? I'm trying to get into Nordic skiing, but uh, I wasn't a skier back then at all. Hiker, though. A lot of hiking. A lot of, you know, there's certainly a every, lot to be done. Every summer, I spend about a week with a backpack on my back. When we were in Massachusetts, we did a lot of uh, fly fishing, uh, certainly through Vermont. Oh, yeah, that's a classic out west. I've never done it, but I, I hear that Wyoming, Montana, and that area are perfect for it. Yeah. Yeah, I have um, some business school classmates from Korea. And they tell me that in Korea, oftentimes you don't fish with a hook. That the Zen of fishing is the process, not the catching of the fish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, yeah. that never really that could worked. be the best thing you get out of it. But any any sort of therapy that nature provides is is worth it, I guess. I agree. Just standing out there, it's, it sounds beautiful. Just being in the water, looking at the mountains. I'm just not sure you can call it fishing anymore. That's right. So, you know, the, the Zen it makes me think of that beautiful depiction of the map and, and pieces in Sakagahara. And um, that's certainly, um, you know, at least for us sort of historical games fans, the, the ace uh, that you've produced. Um, do, you, do you still play it? Do you, do you see it anymore? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it. I, I, I love to see it. I've got copies at home. I don't play it very often. I played the heck out of it while I was developing it. And, and sometimes after that, I like to let others play it. <laughs> and it's been very satisfying to witness other people playing it and enjoying it, though I have not played it very much. Right. The, um, I have a, a convention here in San Diego uh, that a lot of GMT designers come to and and at that convention, I was talking with a friend, Sobi Yosef, who's designing a game, and he's a big fan of any bag mechanic. Um, yeah. And I, I, I just did you did you uh, did you start with a bag at any point there? Did you think about a bag? What was the where, where did where did that all come from? Yeah, a bag's a good idea. I, I like that. I've, uh, I, it's just a random block. You know, there's other ways to produce a random block like Mahjong you shuffles them and you pull one and you know, you, you can play acquire tiles and draw. And I mean, that's effectively a, a random object, but I like the idea of a random object. We're good at randomizing cards. So why not uh, find a way to randomize something else? And they're all the, the same shape. I, I, I think there's also something tactile. I, I believe that games give pleasure in more ways than merely in the intellectual contestation. I think the view of a game, the way it appears, the way it, the way it feels when you touch the pieces, even the way it sounds, speaking of Mahjong, right? A, a classic gaming sound or the way a, uh, a stone sounds when placed on a goal board 
right? If, if you have a proper go board and you place the stone, the proper, there's a beautiful sort of hollowed out knock from placing that stone. A game is a, a multi-sensorial experience. And so I appreciate a draw bag, not just for being a randomizer of a non-card, but also for being a tactile experience that adds something multi-sensorial to the game. Right. I have to tell you, that's a better explanation than Sobe gave me for his obsession with the bag mechanics. So <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll recommend that to him. Do you see that other places in Sakugahara? You, I mean, are there other places where you think about what's more than just visual? Uh, it's, it was very important to me to have all the senses work there. I, I think not having to move the pieces in order to see the totality of the armies was really important to me. Uh, a, a lot of block games, as you know, designed so that the blocks are stacked front to back. And I've played a lot of block games. And if you want to, for, if you forgot who's in your army, you just you finger through the the stack. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted the totality of the board position to be viewable at once without any interference or having to memorize. And uh, and so it was important to me that the blocks could stack. That was another aesthetic decision that I remember being really particular about. You know, it seems to me, and and I'm not perfect on the history, but but that's probably the first time that size block was used with GMT, right? I'm not aware that of that size block ever being used in any game. Uh, so, but I, you know, I approached the idea of a block game with an absolutely blank canvas. I had played a lot of block games and I love them because they are, they allow you to do less with the rules since you've done more with the uncertainty of the pieces, right? The, the one-sided knowledge of the piece, if you think about it, block games are typically less complex rule-wise than counter games. Counter games attempt to create an artificial world in which everything is known. And I feel like the rules overhead obligations that derive from that decision become really substantial. In, in the block game, you, you're in a simpler situation because it's mostly about the experience of being one of those generals. And, and in that case, your knowledge is narrowed. And so you can more inhabit the role. I feel like it's easier to get into the role. But so I love block games and I love them because of the uncertainty. But I didn't carry much from other block games into the Sakigahara design. Uh, in fact, I remember writing in the, the, the notes in the back uh, of the game that uh, games followed a, a series of correlated conventions and that block games, at least at that time, were known for dice. You had blocks, you had dice, you had a lot of rolling. And I thought, well, I just don't want that. And so conventions out the window. And, and also you had step losses in a typical block game. I didn't want it, so that's out. Uh, I didn't feel at all driven or obligated to the conventions of the subgenre. It's interesting. So then it becomes down to a collision between what you have in your hand and what you have dispersed across the map, uh, your armies, as to what your advantage might be, right? Yeah. And I love the way that derived from the circumstance. A good historical game is like a pearl, which is to say it's a reflection of the grain of sand. It is a, it's, a, it's a reflection through mechanisms of the problem that you initially tried to gamify. 
And in this case, the, the situation I was trying to gamify led me to a bunch of mechanisms that I'd never seen used. Lots of I, new creations because that suit, suited the situation. And I, I just didn't like reusing things anyway. So even if a, a mechanism had been perfect, I probably wouldn't have used it. So I, I love that gaming can be an exploration of how to logically depict a real-life, three-dimensional, unique situation through some mechanisms. And the necessity to replicate or depict that situation well can lead you in directions that you have no map for. And and where did you start? Did you start with the uh, with with the broad conflict in mind, and and that's how you decided you were going to create a game? Oh, I, I I love history. Like I'm really into history. I've got a history club, and we get together every month to argue about one a year out of the past. I mean, we we love it. But I only took one history course in my whole college uh, career, and it was history of Japan. And so when I decided that I wanted to get into designing some games, I thought, if I'm going to go history, I'd like to go back to Japan. So I thought about it, and I, I read broadly in Japanese history, and I went to Japan. I, I hiked those roads that are part of the game, and I, 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 I really wanted to depict the history. This was, in a way, the game was an excuse, a vehicle for doing the historical research and getting close to a moment in history that that I could select. Actually, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, and, and so it began with the, uh, the interest in doing something Japanese. It didn't have to be that conflict, but when I read about that conflict, I thought, this is so interesting. I got un a, a civil war, the lines of which are non-geographic. I mean, a game in which you cannot rely on the loyalty of your own units. I mean, who does that? I mean, I, I haven't played games like that. That sounds so fascinatingly different. And I, so I got hooked on it. And I said, this has got to be it. I, this, this is the conflict. This is the nation. This is the conflict. I got to figure out how to make a game out of this. So uh, that's how I got there. So then you decide block game is the right way to depict it, but not a traditional block game. You had, you, I, I guess when you say block game, you're arguing as much for the, just the lack of information, right? Yes, uh, I am. The one-sided nature of information, the idea that you know more about your troops than the other general knows about his or her troops. That's, that's important to me because it's also real. I, I tried to make it also, by the way, the, in inhabitation of one protagonist on each side feels more real to me. I, I don't like the God's eye view as much where you know everything and nothing can hurt you. You could win or you can lose, but you have nothing. You know, there's no personal vulnerability. I wanted to put our players, you know, whoever's Tokugawa, whoever's Ishida, I wanted those players to feel like they were really inhabiting that role with the vulnerabilities and the uncertainty that came with being that person at that time. It's interesting, right? Because you, you end up with, um, with, with the lack of knowledge of what's in the player's hand, lack of knowledge, what's in their army. Um, and, and it allows the players to make big gambles. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you choose to play that way. And I think, you know, my impression of the game after a number of plays is that you really can't win without some gamble. Um, you got to take a risk. And, you know, if you're an actual 
military leader in a struggle like this, you've got to take a risk. I'm pretty sure that fighting a real war doesn't look like lining up a bunch of three to ones. <laughs> right. And yet as a war gamer, you know, we've lined up a lot of three to ones in our time. And, and yes. that's that it doesn't feel real to me. Yeah. Uh, feel real to me feels like, you know, I'm going to hold my breath. Right. But I think now's the time. Right. So go. Right. Yeah. I, that feels more like, like being in that situation. And, and it's one of the great results of the game is the is the excitement of playing out your your hand and your pieces with that other yeah. player in that critical place in that critical moment. Yeah, I, I I love the way the battle, the individual battle unfolds. It's like I deploy this guy, I deploy that guy, and you know, actually, there's a historical kind of justification for that because in the actual climactic battle that took place at Sekigahara, hmm. the Ishida ordered certain units into the battle and they did not go. And so the idea that you can muster a unit, actually, that's saying something. It's like I asked them to fight and look, they're fighting, right? You know, here's the yes. card they're going to fight the card for. for and I, th there's actually drama in that. In, in history, there was genuine drama. Like, will they fight, right? Will Kobayakawa come down? And whose side is he coming down on? Like, that was drama. And so the act of like adding your influence and deploying new units, it feels dramatic, but it feels historically dramatic as well. You know, I I don't know we know much about war gamers other than our own anecdotes, right? What people play and what they prefer. Um, I, I I wish somebody would do a comprehensive study to really understand what uh, what war gamers are, but but. Um, you know, one of the things that we do know is that block games don't sell, and I'm not talking about your game. I'm talking about, um, you know, kind of the, the uh, what I guess, Columbia Games universe of block games. They don't sell as many units uh, as we sell of, just call it traditional Hex Encounter or, or whatever else, right? I don't, well, if you buy that premise, it doesn't look like you buy that premise. You know, I'm not sure I do. And yeah. furthermore, I'm not sure Hex Encounter would be the top seller anymore. It might be card driven. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I don't think there's anything about blocks that would make them an unpopular design. I think it's possible there'd be a correlation between the, the wood and the higher expense and then the higher expense and a lower sales volume. So maybe there's something there, though I'm, I'm not mm -hmm. sure that there is. But I, if you're implying that uh, it, it wouldn't appeal to as broad a, a group of gamers, I wouldn't agree with that. I, I think it can. And if it typically doesn't, maybe it's just because it's fallen into a set of conventions that, uh, that don't fire enough people's imaginations. Well, I have, I have a more controversial conclusion that I'll share with you that, that, that yeah. uh, again, based on anecdote, right? So, uh, and that is that gamers like, they like to know. They like to play in that artificial world of I know everything. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and I think that, you know, that's what leads me to, to the conclusion. But again, the conclusion is based on my anecdote that, that, the, that we don't see as many uh, block games in the world sold as we see whatever it is, whether it's Hex Encounter or Card Driven or, you know, right. some other genre. 
Do you, th- well, do you think there's a bias there? You know, there might be, but I, I don't I don't accept the purity of the position. Uh, gamers put up with a lot of rolled dice. Yeah. You know, war gamers are willing to roll a lot of dice. And if, if you're willing to roll a die, that's a more extreme form of randomness than the kind of randomness you get from flipping a card that one player was looking at or exposing a block that one player was looking at. You see, if it was a card out of my hand or a block out of my army, I'm delivering a a surprise to you, but I would call that a one-sided surprise. I didn't get surprised by that. I knew what I had in my hand and what I had in my army. It was a surprise to you when I showed it to you. But if we roll a die, you know, if we count up the odds and then we roll a die on a CRT, then what we've got then is a two-sided surprise, which means to me that there's actually more uncertainty in in the kind of game that you're saying that certainty-loving wargamers would prefer than there is in the one-sided uncertainty that I'm trying to create. So I think that if gamers truly want to know it all, um, then they should play chess or they should play a game where you truly know it all, where there isn't a random factor. But uh, if you're going to have a random factor, for my money, I prefer a card or an exposed block, a card out of a hand, I should say, not a card out of a deck, but a card out of a hand or an exposed block that was known to one player prior to exposure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Well, it certainly works um, for your game. You know, the other thing we were having that debate about recently um, was these, um, you know, kind of an activation based game. So your game allows the player to determine how much they want to activate at a cost. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, there are other games think, you know, Ted, Ted racers uh, is famous for his chit pull activation games, right. Yeah. Where I don't move everything and you don't move everything. Um, but you, but you pull a chit and that unit moves and your, and your game gives the player more agency than that, which, which I think is brilliant, but you know, um, that is also that's another controversial system, it seems to me. Um, yeah. the, the people like to be able to move their stuff. <laughs> yeah, they do. And and you know, even chit pulls isn't taking it as far as you could take it. What you're doing there is simulating the the agent problem, which is to say, I'm the general and I'm asking all of my units to do different things, but I can't be sure when they'll get around to it. It's like, when does Pickett's charge actually happen, right? It happened in the morning like I wanted, or is Longstreet going to wait too long, right? That's a a real part of Fog fog of War. It's like how how much uh, error or infidelity is there between my will and the the execution of my will. That's good. but another one would be, you see, the trouble with the chit pull is that based on when the chit is pulled, I can give different directions. It's like, oh, okay, so Longstreet's not moving until the afternoon. In that case, no attack, right? I get to, I mean, under that system, I get to change my mind about the move based on the order. Whereas General Lee didn't get to do that. He gave the order in the morning and and then it just doesn't happen when he wants it to happen. So to, to really pull off, off that chip pull uh, mechanism to be more accurate, you'd have to lock in your orders and have the order attached to the chit and then wait for the chit to come out. And that would be an interesting derivation. 
It's very similar to what Mark Herman did with Pericles, where you play a number of orders in advance. Um, and, and, and then those orders resolve themselves. And, and once you realize you've made a mistake, there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, I love that. Yeah. 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 I do too. I do too. I was talking to Mark about that recently, as a matter of fact. Um, and then there's uh, Angola. Have you played Angola? No. So four players. Um, and uh, of course it's, it's, you know, the, 70s conflict in Angola and uh, yeah and it and it's uh, it's interesting because you take um, you take your orders and you you stack them and then you resolve them around the table and uh, you know it's shocking how often you're wrong. <laughs> See, I like that. I, I like it when your intentions meet with reality in an unexpected way, and I don't like when the world and your opposition is prone to your action because it feels deeply unrealistic to me. I like simultaneous orders. I like programmed orders. Uh, I, I like there to be a realistic difference between what you expected to execute and what you can in the end execute. Uh, so yeah, I, I, any kind of a, I, I'm just trying to get at what it's really like. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to me, the things that you don't know should be part of the game. Maybe if you go into, you don't know how good that general is. Well, well that's part of the game. The uncertainty, right? You have troops who haven't seen the elephant. That's part of the uncertainty, right? All of these things are unknown to the protagonist and thus should be unknown to the gamer, in my opinion. So Phil Sabin is an academic on, his, on war games, uh, professional war games, right? Not the hobby stuff that we do, but... yes. But he says that you 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 can't visualize this through the eyes of a leader. You know his 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 view is that we're something even different than a leader. We have we have more and different types of information than a leader would have uh, as we make these decisions. And I thought that's an interesting. You know, part of it is this this fog of war, right? Part part of it is not knowing who will fight and who won't. But there are problems that we just don't can't foresee and understand. Um, that that a traditional war game, and maybe there are some that that are perfect in the other, you know, looking at it the other way. But a traditional war game won't gives us too much information for us to be the leader. Uh, I do believe that a typical war game gives you too much information, yeah. and my aspiration would be to give you what the leader knows. Yeah, it's a it's an exercise in being that person at that time. I, that that interests me particularly, and I would some of this strains the edge of what you can do on a board, because on a board you have selective and I'm sorry, on a board you tend to know all of what you know, and the other player knows all of what they know, and anything that isn't known to one of you is known to neither of you, and it's a completely random event. I uh, I love the idea of partial knowledge. Like, like I sent my troops over to the, the right flank. I don't know what happened there, but it happened half an hour ago. I don't have news back yet. If I send reinforcements, it's just on a guess. The other side doesn't know either unless they've positioned a scout, in which case they might know 10 minutes before I know, and then they might be able to do something with that knowledge. I love that. I love the idea that you're 
your knowledge is imperfect and that you have a limited amount of attention and information, right? That there is some kind of a limit on that. Uh, certainly from seeing conflicts or even being involved in business conflicts, I feel like there's a really meaningful limitation on you know, human bandwidth around what you can know, what you can learn, how fast you can be sure of what you think you know. These are all real factors that play into how we handle crises. And I'd love to see that be part of a game. So what's next for you? Your perspective is, it is incredibly interesting. Uh, where, where will you take it? <laughs> well, I don't write too many games. I, I'm pretty busy with other things. And, and I, uh, I've written one abstract, one business game, the Sekigara, one war game. I'm shipping right now with GMT one racing game, it's a chariot racing. And I have in the works coming up P500 probably in the first quarter next year, January, February, a, a sports game. And I'm just, I'm trying to have as much fun exploring different parts of gaming in a limited amount of time as I can. And so you can count on whatever mechanisms are in any of these games being totally foreign to you. Right. There won't, it won't look like any other game. It won't play anything like what you're familiar with. Charioteer is very different. A lot of, a lot of games, you know, you, you have one card and it does one thing and you play that card and you do that thing. And with Charioteer, it's totally different. I wanted sacrifices, real time sacrifice. So every card does two things and you need more than one card to do anything. So you're playing sets out of your hand to try to make different kind of moves around the, around the, uh, the track. It's, uh, I challenged myself to write a short game. And so Charioteer is supposed to play in under an hour with, uh, with a reasonable number of people. Now, if you get maybe five or six people, it could take an hour and a half. But it should be quick and dense with decisions. So it's simul play. It's making sets. It's a very different kind of game from what I've designed before. And then my next one is, uh, is going to be about uh, playing racket sports like tennis and squash except with dice bluffing and so and the dice are upgradable so as you go through the game you can make sacrifices to get the dice to be more powerful and then you're bluffing on the amount and it's not just the the dice that can pay the price of the bluff it's also your energy cubes and you you have certain other things that you're allowed to spend to to win uh, a point but you may not want to make that expense because it it could hurt you for future points. So whereas Liar's Dice, and I love Liar's Dice, wonderful little game, but it's relentlessly tactical. Every turn is just like, what's good for right now? You're not thinking about the future at all. And just like with the racing game, Charioteer, I tried to make it as strategic as possible. You actually have to think about the last move when you make the first move. Uh, and that racing games typically are not like that. And it's the same way with my uh, my sports game with, with with tennis. So you you have to be thinking ahead, right? How how much am I willing to leave on the court this move because I still have to win this point, this set, you know, whatever. I, I need to yeah. I need to be sure that I don't unbalance myself. So it's it's another attempt to take something which could be strictly tactical and put a lot of strategy into it. Yeah. And the mechanisms will be. It, unlike anything you've played. Well, I love the promise. I look forward to it. 
in, in closing, I, you know, I, I recently designed a simple game myself and it took me a couple of years. It was, uh, the, you know, I thought the simple game would be a nice palate cleanser between complex games. And it was yeah. actually um, the hardest of the experiences. Did you have that experience as well? Oh, how interesting. Oh, this is, this is fascinating. You know, it is difficult to write a simple game. The, uh, wow. No, I, you know, actually, I think that, that, first of all, it's a phenomenon of every game that they always feel like they're 80% finished. And, and I, I, the day I imagine the game, I think this is it, I've got it, right? I'll polish up the other 20%, it's going to fly. And, and then a year later, I'm thinking, all right, maybe I'm at 80% by now. And then a year after that, it's like, I must be close, but, but actually it's 80%. And, and, and so it, it takes so long to get there. Uh, I'd say that the complicated games took me longer when I think about it, though I go so slowly, all of my games take me a long time. I, I, in, in a way, that's a blessing because it allows me to back away from it and then re-encounter the concept. And I think that that backing away and re-encountering is the really essential mechanism in the creation of a good, of a, a good uh, game. You have to keep distancing yourself so that you can be honest about which things aren't amazing. Yeah. And that, that re-encountering and reassessing is essential to, uh, to having a clear-sighted view. Yeah, I, uh, I've said this before, but I, I visualize that Mark Herman that vomits a game and it's perfect. I think it just happens with him. I think that's his. Maybe that's somebody who, can do it. I can't do that. <laughs> I, I can't. Maybe Mark and, can do it. And, and, you know, Mark can do it for me. Um, I'm not a good designer, but I'm a pretty good collaborator. So, it, you know, I if I get enough play testing, I can really create a game. Without the play yeah. testing and the time, it's not going to work. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, the people take really different approaches to making a game. Yeah, uh, I tend to imagine it in great detail and think that's it. It's perfect. I haven't play tested it once, but doggone it, it's perfect. And then I'll I'll build it, and so confident I am that it's going to be perfect that I'll build it really nicely, and I'll do good graphics on the cards, and I'll <laughs> I'll get it. You know, the board's going to be great, and I do a printed version, and everything, and I play it, and the first time I play, it's like, oh, that's that's not even good. <laughs> I did all this work I invested in, that's it's not even good. So, I, uh, I I think I get through game design through surges of. Uh, unwarranted optimism about how good that next next iteration is going to be. I keep thinking I've got it. <laughs> Until you get it on paper, yeah. Well, Matt, great to talk to you. What a pleasure. And uh, so much look forward to, to what's next with you. And uh, maybe we can spend some time talking about uh, short game design uh, in the future. Yeah. You know, I'd really enjoy that. Thanks, Harold. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thanks for the opportunity, and I look forward to a game sometime.